hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. The old shed is damp and dark, like something out of a horror movie. And your hands are caked in dirt, but you're not bothered. In fact, you're happy as a pig in doo-doo. <laughs> you know the earth holds secrets and you want to learn them all. You're an archeologist digging in Rainford. They say you can't dig in these parts anywhere without hitting pottery and they're right and proud of it. Mrs. Kensington, the property owner, brings out lunch to share with you and your team of volunteers from the local town. You all chat with Mrs. Kensington about what you're finding and how she can help out. It's community archaeology at its best. The glaze on the pottery shards spread on your palm may have dulled over the centuries they've been buried, but the fine workmanship is unmistakable. You've written countless papers on the history and wider importance of Rainford, but actually holding the stuff of the past never loses its magic for you. Who made this pot? When? Who used it? And how did it end up broken here? Mrs. Kensington counts potters in her family tree. Is this the work of one of their hands? In short, how exactly will this small piece of the puzzle bring us closer to understanding one of England's most important historic pottery industries? Well, that's what you're here to find out. Hey there, Dr. Karen Bellinger here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time and across cultures. Oh, that never gets old. Well, not for me at least. Today on the podcast, we're talking about archaeology and an artifact class that I nerd out about every time. That's pottery. We're trekking back to 17th century Liverpool with Dr. Liz Stewart, who researches the work and lives of the pottery artisans who lived in Rainford, a nearby village that played a key role in the emergence of Liverpool as a major international port. And you thought the Beatles were the first big thing out of Liverpool. Time to fire up the kiln and get right to it. My guest today is Dr. Liz Stewart. Liz is an archaeologist and museum curator who trained at the universities of Durham, York, and Leicester. Liz is fascinated by the ways in which small finds archaeology, such as pottery, reveals the individual stories of lives, communities, beliefs, trade, and migration. Liz is lead curator of archaeology and the historic environment at the Museum of Liverpool, where she engages local communities in regional archaeology through collections and field projects. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Well, it would be great if you can just set the stage for us, give us what I call the 101, a little overview of the Rainford site that you're going to be talking about in particular, why that site is useful as a backdrop for the consideration of the lives of artisan potters and traders, and maybe just the quickest sort of 
context of pottery manufacturing industry in England in general at the time. Okay, so Rainford is a small village near the town of St Helens in Merseyside. So it's about 18 kilometres or 11 miles northeast of Liverpool. Uh, it, now it has around 7,000 people living there. It's centred around a church, All Saints, um, and developed from the medieval period onwards. Um, but it's particularly exciting from an archaeological point of view because it was the centre of a pottery industry uh, from the later 16th century and into the 17th century and carried on through into the 18th century. And then also from the 17th century, they specialised in making clay tobacco pipes there. Wonderful category of archaeological evidence, oh, aren't they? they? Are. Because yeah. they have things written on them and they have particular shapes and designs which change so predictably over time that they're brilliant for dating things. So that combination of pottery and clay pipes is, is really, really useful and fascinating in Rainford. And so how unique was Rainford in terms of the English pottery manufacturing industry of its time? Well, around the 17th century, there would have been a number of, of centres of pottery making and Rainford was just one of many. Um, pottery making would have been quite regionally varied. You know, people wouldn't have been travelling around and sharing ideas about the pottery they were making. They would have been making the things that the local people in their local markets wanted to buy. So you do see quite a lot of regional variation. And you certainly have that in Rainford where there are specific types of pottery which you don't see anywhere else. So, for example, there's a tall type of three-handled drinking cup, uh, which historically has been called a tig. Um, and the ones from Rainford have sort of the, the lower part of them, the edges are cut away to create a sort of faceted design. And it's a type that you see in Rainford, but you don't see elsewhere. So again, that's a really fascinating piece of archaeology, because when you find those, you're pretty sure they were going to be made in Rainford. Was there a functional purpose for that cutaway you describe? Or was it just, look, this is this is our local brand? Yeah, it's it's a it's a local design. It's it's just uh obviously something that the Rainford potters tried, people found attractive, um, and, and you know, the, the pottery they were making there is very beautiful. It's it's darkware, so it's it's glazed with a, a dark brown glaze, uh, which kind of become very kind of shiny. Um, you know, they're very much trying to make things that are beautiful as well as functional. And and the faceting on these on these tall drinking cups was was just part of that really it just it really Im immediately brings to mind that that there was sort of um it sounds like a dichotomy between local pottery production industries and import industries uh, as you talk about this real localized consumption of industrial output yeah so um you know back in the in the 17th century you're going to have had you know things being made on a fairly local scale it wasn't really until the 18th century that things started to become so much more internationalized and the area of staffordshire in england that we now call the potteries uh, became known as the potteries because that's where so much of the, the the pottery was being made for both local national and international exports and and that's where liverpool comes in because because a lot of the pottery was exported through Liverpool and, and out around the world. Yeah, being in a port town can be very convenient. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. And I'd love to dive in now to our individual potters, just sort of look over the shoulder at what they're doing at work. 
So I think one of the things that's quite interesting about uh, a potter's working day is that uh, it would have been at home. Um, and one of the reasons I've really started to think about this a lot recently is because we're so many of us are working at home. And, you know, thinking about how people, you know, really use their homes and their spaces is is really fascinating to think that it was so much more of a common experience to be working at home before or in the very early stages of the industrial revolution so the potter might start their day um you know they'd be working pretty much uh, following the sunlight hours you know they'd need a lot of light for their for their work making these very fine things um, and we find that the the potters in rainford are doing a mixture of both potting and and farming and occasionally some some other jobs as well so wills and inventories and baptisms and things like that uh, describe people in rainford as as potters or sometimes as muggers because they're making mugs um, but they also when you see these wills they're also owning things that show that they are farming to an extent as well so they may have crops in the ground or they may have farming equipment in their house um plows and things like that so it their, their working day would have been quite mixed and varied depending on on the season um and depending on you know their, their particular kind of outputs at that at that particular time Okay. And you mentioned that uh, in addition to farming, they might do some other kinds of craft activities. What, was there any kind of standard mix or did that depend on the individual potter as far as you can tell? Well, I think it depends on the individual and, and their skills. So you certainly see some people kind of moving into, you know, between farming and potting or between farming and, and pipe making. Um, and then you get also other people who uh, are specialising in, in other local crafts. So things like clock and watchmaking in, in nearby Prescott was, was particularly common. So you do see these mixtures of different of different trades and skills when you when you look at the documentary sources, which obviously sit really interesting alongside the, the archaeological evidence. And in terms of their agricultural work, how would you describe that if, if you do know much about it? I mean, is it more geared towards subsistence or was there kind of, um, you know, cottage agriculture going on as well and exchange within the village of those products? I think it is, yeah, that they are um, growing crops and probably, you know, selling those. You see that, you know, some of the values of some of the things they have uh, in terms of the farming equipment and, and the, the crops and things themselves are fairly valuable. So it's probably more than, than just subsistence. So potters will own animals, they'll own crops in the ground, they'll have reaped crops sometimes, and it'll say whether they've been threshed or not. Um, they'll have farming equipment. One of my favorite favourites actually is the will of, of Thomas Hooton in 1619 where he's listed as having half a swarm of bees and I just love the idea that the guy went to assess that and and thought well is that a swarm of bees no I think that's half a swarm <laughs> that's so English sorry <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether he was you know making honey for himself or selling that but you know it's obviously potentially another kind of stream of income to have you know things like bees and animals and, and crops and things you know as part of a part of the things that these people own yeah and you know I can imagine that many if not let's be honest everybody living in in Rainford at this time participated in some degree in the agricultural economy how common was it do you know to be a potter 
you know, as the skilled trade. Yeah, if you look at Rainford in the 17th century, there are records of probably around 100 people who are recorded as potters or muggers or pipe makers. So, you know, the people working in these kind of clay industries, it's it's relatively common. It's obviously something that, that Rainford specialised in, and that's probably down to um, the local resources. So there was clay available locally, although actually for pipe making, they, they quite quickly moved to importing finer quality clay. Um, and there was also uh, coal available for firing pots and, and also peat that was sometimes used for firing. Um, so it was just a kind of perfect storm there for the pottery industry to, to develop in, in that area. Oh, it's so interesting. And, and were there any sort of formal training routes, you know, apprenticeships or was it more of a family thing? How did one become a potter in Rainford? You certainly see certain families carrying on in the same trades. Um, and so you'll see uh, with pipe making, for example, you'll see the same family sort of stamps kind of carrying on from one generation to the next. But there were also apprenticeships. So certainly by the later 17th and 18th century, uh, there were opportunities for poor children to be apprenticed, to become potters. And it's actually that's one of the things that gives us the evidence about the decline of the pottery industry and the increase of the pipe making industry is how the number of apprenticeships changes um, so that that's another route into the into the trade as well. So what kind of tools were these potters using? So if you look at the um, probate inventories after people have died, they often list sort of every single thing that those people owned, um, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, And for potters, it will include the things that they used in in that trade. So they'll have pot boards, which is something that modern potters still use, a plank of wood on which they put the the made pots in order to to dry out. Um, They'll have pots thrown, so that's the, the... their stock, um, potentially the throw ones of ones that haven't been fired yet. Um, and then they'll have, you know, uh, just vague comments of things relating to the trade um, of pottery. So they'll have comments to say that, you know, this person's a potter and they have they have the materials of the trade. And the necessities belonging to a potter's work, for example, is listed in, in one uh, inventory. So we don't see exactly what that is, but it will be the kind of hand tools and, and the wheel and things like that, that that the potter will have. How would you say that the historical record for potting in Rainford squares up with the archaeological record for it? Well, certainly you do see, uh, you know, lots of potters listed in the historical records. And if you dig a hole in Rainford, you're likely to find some 17th century <laughs> pottery. So, you know, it, they do kind of marry up in that sense. But I think each kind of adds detail that the other doesn't have. So the archaeology, for example, shows us, you know, the whole range of different kinds of, of um, pots that, that people were making. You know, you, you sort of see you know, particularly where there's been a kiln that's misfired and everything was thrown away. You see the whole range of things that are being made. And that sort of detail obviously just isn't recorded in the documents. But the documents, on the other hand, will show, you know, those links between the different industries. They'll also, in some cases, show a bit of detail about exactly where people are working. So, you know, they'll list the inventories, might list the things that people owned sort of room by room. And you'll see that the potting equipment is in the outhouses you know it's with the farming tools it's effectively Mm. a barn that's being kind of repurposed as a pottery workshop and so you see how those things kind of go hand in hand for people in a way that isn't visible from the archaeology 
Yeah, that's so true. Those probate records are amazing, aren't they? Um, And so that makes me wonder a little bit how they're firing these products. So unfortunately, no kilns have ever actually been found in Rainford. Um, It's likely that they kind of are under some of the buildings that, you know, are still in use because there's been that sort of continuity in in the different different places in Rainford. But, um, you know, we do know a little bit in the sense that we have records of um, people cutting uh, peat um, to fire and we've got uh, a full knowledge that there was there was um, coal mining going on in the 17th century as well so you know we know that they have the materials to to build these kilns and, and to fire things so um, you know that's that's one of the reasons why why Rainford became a second centre for you know the artisan potters to to really build up their industry there. I mean, do you think there's any possibility there were community kilns in Rainford where people would bring their unfired wares? It's possible. I, I don't know. As I say, because none have been excavated, we don't know kind of quite how they functioned um, at the moment, but uh, maybe one day we'll find out. Yeah. yeah, well, one would imagine something like that might appear at least once or twice in the, in the historical record, but you never know. Do you get any sense that these individuals participating in this mixed economy had a kind of unique identity as potters? if potting was part of their particular mixed economy? You know, was it a strong identity? It it seems to be. Certainly, you know, when people are, you know, creating the historical records, you know, listing that their children are going to be baptised, you know, these people are the sons and daughters of muggers or potters. Um, So, you know, while we can see that that some of them are also farming, it seems to be the, the potter's pottery work that is their kind of their identity um, and you know when you look at the the objects they're very skillfully made these are people who have you know trained for years to to get to a point of making incredibly fine walled beautiful vessels that they're you know you could only imagine that they'd be very proud of so you know it, that seems again to suggest that you know this is part of their their identity yeah yeah, it sounds like it. And and so were there any particular credentials to kind of hang out your shingle and be a potter? Well, some of the people seem to kind of run in families. So it's likely that people learn this skill from others, um, you know, and so people would gradually kind of build up that reputation through their through their family and their name. Um, but, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a situation where these things were kind of being sold in 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 shops in Rainford. A lot of these would have been taken to local markets. Um, so it, it, by the time the objects are being sold, it likely is not they weren't actually being sold by the potter themselves so it's a you know it's a kind of system where you know there's one person making it and then it's being transported and then being sold in 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 shops and markets elsewhere um so the sort of marketing side of it is a you know probably a slightly different kind of process you've mentioned that that each locality had its own distinctive style of pottery production and types of pottery production what, what kind of evidence, if any, do we have for exchange between them? You know, it, it, obviously, I, I, I think we could imagine it appearing in both the archaeological and the historical record, but I wonder what, what you've been able to find about those local trade networks. Yeah, when we're looking at kind of those local networks, one of the things that we can do is use those 
unique local types to see how they're distributed. So if we look at faceted cups, which are these tall drinking cups with the, the edges of the, the lower area kind of cut away to create these facets, they're uniquely made in Rainford, but we see them found on domestic sites in Cheshire, in Lancashire, in Greater Manchester, in Cumbria, over the sea in the Isle of Man. So they've got a distribution area of 50, uh, 50 miles or 80 kilometers or so in, in any direction from Rainford. So these are things that are obviously traveling some distance. And there's a little bit of historical evidence about how that happens. So we know a little bit about these kind of traveling sellers, kind of middle men and women, as we think of them today. Um, actually, some of them are described as basket women because they're women who carry the goods in baskets on their that would be heavy. <laughs> you probably can't well, carry too much at any one time. Wouldn't it? Absolutely. Wow. And so obviously the fact that these people are carrying these things, whether on their butts or, you know, by horse and cart, is the thing that's going to limit how far these things will travel. Um, so, you know, them traveling around 50 miles is, is a massive difference distance when you think of it that way, isn't it? It really is. And, and it, it's a great explanation for why pottery industries tend to kind of... Um, uh, emerge around ports like Liverpool because it's a heck of a lot easier to move heavy stuff by water, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, and of course, in the northwest, it's the it's the place where canals start to be uh, developed. The first uh, canal in in England was um, built in in the St Helens area in in the mid eighteenth century, the Sankey Navigation Canal. So, um, you know, that along with kind of improvements to turnpike roads would have you know massively increased the potential for these things to move. And the fact that that Liverpool is within in such a short distance relatively to, to Rainford then also meant that things could travel as I said to the Isle of Man but also up and down the coast places like Cumbria you know that's a long way over, over land but relatively uh, would have been easier to travel by sea. Do you have any evidence or do you have any hunches that maybe some of these individuals work together at at any given time for a particular reason or was it really kind of a, a rather lonely pursuit home-based <laughs> yeah so it's mainly men who are listed as potters as as individuals um and it seems like they probably were working fairly independently from one another from from what we can tell but probably what we don't really know is is how much they worked with their families um you know how much um the rest of their family would would help and support you know it's, it's one person going out and digging the clay whilst another person is is throwing the pots um one of the little sort of hints that we might get is that there are some of the, the objects which are found in Rainford which are very, very small and fine, so particularly cups, which look like they've been made for children, but because they're so fine, depending what tools were used, it's possible that, that it required small fingers to actually get inside and make them. Ah, so, right. You know, again, this is, as you say, this is a hunch, really. But, you know, it does make you wonder whether it's all men making these these objects or whether some of them might have been made by, by women or indeed the, the children of the family as well. Yeah. And, you know, I just I'm I'm just still sort of spinning over this in my mind, this idea of these local styles that were produced in a dispersed fashion, right? So there is no evidence for kind of a big centralized factory type production, pre-industrial, pre obviously. So you lose use of that term factory. But what do you make of the fact that despite this dispersed production system, that really strong regional styles 
persisted? Well, in terms of the, the types, so, you know, the different kind of colours or glazes and, you know, things like that that are used, that will probably depend on what's locally available in terms of materials. So they could make the darkware pottery in Rainford because they had all of the materials there to do that. Um, so, you know, all of the potters would have the similar kinds of material to make those similar kinds of things. In terms of the, the forms and the shapes, yeah, that is something that is either, you know, one potter or one family, or it's it's a group of people who are going, well, actually, you know, those, those things that they're making are selling really rather well perhaps I'll make something like that you know and it's very very difficult to kind of get to the bottom of how those things kind of happen but it is something that you do see in the archaeological records yeah I just again you know as an anthropologically trained archaeologist trust me I totally get that that's an impossible question I just asked you to, <laughs> to, to give us a definitive answer but it's it's always very interesting to think about how this kind of craft production may may have a bit of you know uh, personal identity and, and social identity built into the productive you know process yeah it, it may well and you know people may have had kind of their signature kind of pots that they made but what we do see when you know when we've had sites where the, the really interesting ones are actually where something's gone wrong in the kiln and the potter has has opened it and, and doubtless been very upset because, you know, everything is warped or bubbled or, you know, the kiln's been too hot or, you know. And so what you find are the whole range of the vessels that would have been in one single kiln or a limited number of kilns if you're getting a dump over a period of time. So that, that kind of shows you the range and you see that it's not a person who's making 25 identical examples of the same thing. They're making, you know, lids and cups and bowls and plates in lots and lots of different forms. Um, so you're getting, you know, things that are either being made to order, um, you know, for particular individuals, or they're trying out a range of different things to see what, what will sell because, you know, people will want quite unique and individual things by the looks of things so uh, you know that sort of gives us a sense that that it's not it's not kind of one particular type that's that's a special speciality for for a potter they are they are playing to the market and trying to work out what they can sell most of yeah it's a business at the end of the day right absolutely so how were potters seen in sort of this social hierarchy if they were i mean potting being an important element of the local economy as well as individuals within the local economy was there any sense that you get of their social status in their communities yeah so there would have been you know a good number of potters in in rainford at any given time they would all have kind of known one another um and i think again it's the it's the inventories that 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 are recorded at, at the point when people have passed away that capture all the things that they own that kind of give a little bit of a hint as to you know their status and these are people who are not um they're not at the very lowest ranks of society they have some of the nice things in life they have feather beds and the, the inventories even list the sheets individually you know <laughs> they, they have all their furniture cupboards, chairs stools things like that they have um they have quite a lot of soft furnishings which is you know something that's kind of growing in 
in the 17th century as something that's become very desirable. So, you know, they have cushions and curtains on their four-poster beds. And then occasionally you see that they have some, some luxury goods. So, you know, there are people listed with brass and pewter, which are valuable items. One person even listed as owning some jewels. Um, and and the, other, the other valuable thing that, that people also have listed individually are some foodstuffs, so meats and cheeses and things like that. Yeah. And you mentioned that they're not selling directly, most likely, these individual producers. So how would they have been paid? So the potters would have presumably sold their um, their pots to kind of uh, traders and, and middlemen. Um, they You do see some records of fairly large sales to some of the larger houses. So um, there's a sale in 1590 of a horse load of pots going to two of the sort of larger houses in the area. So they're obviously kind of buying in bulk on those sorts of occasions. But more commonly, I think it would have been a, a much smaller scale. So, you know, the potters would have sold their material um, and then they would have been sort of transported by these these traders to, to market. So you've got um, you probably your nearest sort of decent sized market is, is Ormskirk, which is six miles or 10 kilometers away. So there's a fairly readily accessible market there for this trade to happen. But, um, you know, it would have it would have been a sort of additional kind of task for the potters to actually be going and selling their, their goods. So it seems like a certain amount of that was was done through through intermediaries. Were there any risks in, in being a potter? Well, there were some health and safety risks. Um, a lot of the glazes that are used are now kind of known to have been relatively dangerous because they contain things like like lead and heavy metals. Um, but I think economically, you know, it was it was a benefit to be able to kind of spread your your income. You know, a lot of farmers now kind of diversify, don't they? And you have a, a farm shop or you know a sort of visitor experience and you know obviously on a smaller scale that's that's the sort of thing that, that they were doing um, then as well. So the more different streams of income you have um, presumably the more stable uh, things are likely to be through the seasons. Yeah totally makes sense and as far as you know were there any industrial standards you know was there any official body or, or even just sort of neighborhood um, busybodies who kind of held them accountable for the quality of their work? No I think the quality of the work would really be judged in the sales um, and you know the, the fine kind of pots that, that are being made are of really good quality so if you've got several people working in the same industry in the same area at the same time things are going to be fairly competitive. Do you have any evidence or do you have a hunch again um, because so much of archaeological interpretation proceeds in that manner uh, that these workers could rely on one another or any other sort of networks or partnerships for support well i suppose we, you just sort of have to think yourself in, into quite a different type of community to perhaps what we have now where you know there would be large numbers of sort of family relationships there um, where you know people would presumably support one another in in one way or another because you know these are people who are you know living very close together and and working very close together um, but there's not there's not a lot that really kind of captures that I suppose it's a sport, sort of historical sort of 
uh, activity that you know it's it's so every day that nobody ever writes it down um yeah, so it's exactly. difficult to get to the bottom of, of exactly how those things function no so true so true as an archaeologist liz you study objects from the past and what they reveal about the people who made and used them can you talk about that a little bit for us as you see it relating to the rainford potters yeah, so obviously archaeologists are dealing with a wide variety of different types of objects to try and understand past lifestyles. And I think one of the really special things about looking at a particular village and a particular industry, as we have done over the last few years with Rainford, is that you do kind of zoom into the detail of exactly kind of what these what these people were making and using on a day-to-day -day basis, and then kind of bringing together the the archaeological evidence and the, the historical evidence, you sort of see how that fits into a household and a lifestyle. So you see kind of people making, you know, particular objects. So some very, very fine tableware. So um, beautiful fine cups, often with lids, which, you know, strikes us as a little bit unusual now. They're obviously wanting to keep their drinks warm. With the I was going to say, top. that sounds so practical. I would love one right about now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, very, very finely made bowls, um, you know, occasionally plates and things like that. But it also it kind of sort of highlights the things that you're not seeing, that there aren't many plates. So then what else are the plates being made of? And you can look at the inventories and see, well, you know, sometimes there are um, there are pewter plates, but also sometimes there are wooden plates and things like that. So you can kind of start to build that picture of, of the kind of lifestyles and, and the things that people have around them in their homes. Yeah. And when you had mentioned the, what the, the spoilers, the, the term as, as I learned it, I, I'm not sure if that's an American specific term, but um, the, the ruined, the failed products in the kiln. And, you know, I, I sort of think it's so poignant to imagine them opening up their kiln and just being like, oh, darn it lost yeah. all those that didn't work you know what Absolutely. happened this is like when you ruin your roast you know it's like damn it <laughs> what did i do wrong <laughs> exactly yeah we call we call them wasters in the uk they're the things that obviously have been made and, and go to waste and it does give you a kind of sense of how how proud they were of their parts you know there are some uh, items that you find where the, the form hasn't been altered you know they're, they're still very much the shape of a, a, a mug or a cup um, but the glaze has perhaps bubbled and actually, you know, to the modern eye, it's it's very attractive in a in a in a funny kind of way. But you know, obviously they sort of looked at it and thought, well, I couldn't possibly try and sell that. And so, you know, it, it does underline that it's not about the function, it's about the function and how beautiful the item is as well, uh, that they've thrown away things that would work. Um but yeah, you, your heart does bleed for, for the, the potter who opened the kiln and, you know, they're beautifully made things are just kind of squished sometimes or they've got, you know, bits on them from where something exploded. Um, I think it's quite interesting that probably these things happened because they were kind of experimenting and pushing the boundaries a little bit. You see them trying to make kind of copies of international types of, of, of pots sometimes. So we've got a nice example of a jug, which is a copy of a German type. Um, it was almost trying to fire the, the clay very hard towards kind of more stoneware. So it's, um, it's kind of, um, you know, they're, they're pushing the boundaries and that's possibly why things go wrong sometimes. And oh, it's what happens every time I try to bake, Liz. I, I don't <laughs> bake anymore. I don't bake. <laughs> 
But I think that brings us to th this sort of really interesting question about what kind of broader significance pottery would have had at the time for these people. I mean, you know, it's a functional item and they're obviously seeking to make it very beautiful as well. And in some respects, trying to compete with uh, elite imported wares. And, you know, that doesn't always go so well when you don't have the, the right raw materials or the, or the technological know-how. Um, but, you know, I guess we've talked a lot about what we think it might have meant to the potters. What, what did pottery mean at this time for the people who are consuming it? Yeah, so majority of people would have had pottery in their households. You know, they would have been using it in the kitchen for producing uh, goods. So we get things like salting pans for when people are trying to, you know, salt meats. We get panchions from when they were trying to separate milk and make cheese. Um, and then they're, they're obviously also using it as kind of tablewares, as cups and, and plates and bowls and, and things. Pottery wasn't the most high status of material, um, but it also wasn't the lowest. So you could have, you know, wooden things. Uh, and then if you were very, very wealthy, you could have, uh, you know, pewter and brass. Do you have any insight into how the pottery industry fit into the emergence of Liverpool as a transnational trade depot in general? Yeah, so pottery would have been a significant export from Liverpool by the 18th century. And at that point, the pottery that was, was being exported out of Liverpool and going certainly to America uh, would have come from the potteries from Staffordshire. Um, and we have examples of uh, pottery excavated in Liverpool that was clearly for the export market because, it, it, you know, it has American place names on it. Um, oh, wow. Or, Oh, there's, there's one wonderful example which actually excavated underneath the site of the Museum of Liverpool, which is uh, a, a piece of pottery which has got uh, George III's cartouche on it. Um, but the item is actually a chamber pot. So we, I love it. That would have been for the colonies, right? Exactly. Always <laughs> That's awesome. That got to be going to America so you know at that point pottery would have been a sort of a significant part of, of, of Liverpool's trade along with obviously a lot of other goods um, but we have to bear in mind that in the 17th century when we're at the peak of the the pottery making in in Rainford Liverpool was still a very small place you know it would only have had a population of about 6,000 people and then it went through a really rapid growth in the in the 18th and 19th century um, at the end of the 17th century, traveller Celia Fiennes visited Liverpool and she said that it was mostly newly built. You know, it was a place that was recreating re itself in, in this period. And the sort of the really difficult question is to know kind of whether whether any of the Rainford material kind of made it to Liverpool kind of in that 17th century period and, and was exported. And that's that's kind of the next big question that we, we'd absolutely love to answer. Um, there's probably only a window of 30 or 40 years when Rainford is still at the peak of its pottery making and before kind of Staffordshire takes over as the main kind of export area. Um, and, you know, we, it's just really tantalising to wonder whether, you know, how much, whether, um, how far that, that Rainford 
pottery went, um, whether it actually did kind of make it all the way to, to America. And, uh, you know, that's, that's possibly the kind of the next step in, in the research. Oh, it sounds really exciting and challenging, right? Because you're in, in some respects, you're looking for a needle in a haystack there. If you're working backwards from the deposition sites in, <laughs> right, in colonial American sites and tracing it back through, say, shipping records or, or just what you know of general exactly. trade routes. But, oh, it sounds really fascinating fascinating well it, it, it's one of those things that it's much more easy to do with with clay pipes you know as we've said we both love clay pipes because they tell you so much oh, well, makers marks and stylistically yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. well if you have bowls but you know and yeah the board yeah yes yeah. all the ways that they tell you so many things absolutely and they you know we, we can see that there are rainford pipes exported all over the world you know um and and rainford seems to go with the market you know at the at the close of the 17th century you're getting the the pottery industry declining and the and the tobacco pipe industry increasing uh, in rainford so you know they're, they're obviously kind of moving into that more popular market at that point and then that is very very traceable you know we'll be able to sort of identify uh, those those pipes elsewhere. Liz, what are some of the fascinating questions that you still have about the Rainford site and the lives of the potters who lived and worked in this community? So we know so much about the pottery that was being produced in the 17th century and we can see where it's being sort of made and then used elsewhere in, in northwest England. It's just kind of interesting to consider whether, you know, there might be um, you know, more, more to tell about the influence of these potters in Rainford in terms of any of their, their material being used nationally or internationally. Um, and that's just really quite mind-blowing to think, you know, back in the 17th century, there was so much kind of international contact that even a small village could have had, you know, that sort of international reach potentially. Yeah, I think it's so tempting in our presentist way to, to just think of this crossing as having been impossible. But in fact, it, it was just really kind of the norm. They went back and forth all the time, carrying goods, people, um, raw materials, finished products. And, and yeah, it, it stands to reason that Rainford absolutely could have put its mark somewhere amazingly international. Exactly. You know, Liverpool kind of grew so rapidly on the back of, of international trade from, you know, a small town of around 6,000 people in the 17th century. But by the close of the 18th century, there were 80,000 people living in Liverpool because it had, it had just kind of taken off. And, you know, a lot of that is about links across the Atlantic. And obviously, sadly, a lot of it is about the development of the uh, trade in enslaved Africans uh, and Liverpool had a massive role in, in that um, but you know there were a range of kind of industries which were were linked to to, um, to that transatlantic trade so um, there's a lot there's a lot of kind of potential for there to be um, you know more stories to tell really about those international links and, and links around Merseyside. So interesting. All right, I have one last question for you, Liz. Okay. Would you have made a good 17th century potter? I, I don't think I would ever have the kind of skills to make the kinds of pots that we see in the archaeological record. I think that takes years of perfecting. Um, I think 
one of the things I really like about my job is that I do a wide variety of different things. Um, and so I think I would have been very up for doing a bit of potting and a bit of farming, but I don't think my pots would ever have, have cut the mustard. I don't think they would ever have sold at the market. So, um, so no, it's possibly not, not my next career move. <laughs> well said. I'm with you. I think my potting might be about at the level of my baking. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you about this fascinating topic and also just to kind of talk in um, slightly shop talk uh, archaeology. I, I love that. Um, it's been a long time since I've pulled bits of pottery out of the ground myself, and it's a really interesting artifact class. And as our conversation today shows, it's incredible how much one can infer from these pottery shards we find at sites that we dig. Absolutely. It's, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to speak to you. Um, I think that from the moment of, of revealing a new, a new find, it, it just continues to be exciting and to, to add to, to what we know. So, uh, so there's so much to, to learn and to, to find out about from even the humble pot. In archaeology, few artifact classes match pottery as a treasure trove of information about the past. First of all, pottery is one of the more durable materials, and it survives being buried in many soil conditions that make short work of wood, leather, fabric, and bone. Pottery styles tend to change predictably over time, and thus they're invaluable in dating sites. But pottery also gives us a window into socioeconomic status, community organization, technology, trade, and even identity. The pottery sites at Rainford prove just that. Research by archaeologists like Liz are pulling back the curtain on the multifaceted lives of pottery artisans who made a pretty darn good living selling their pieces to local and more distant clientele at a time when utility and craft were utterly intertwined. Until next week. Hey there. You can follow today's guest at Liz J. Stewart on Twitter. Also, check out the new book, The Pottery and Clay Tobacco Pipe Industries of Rainsford at shop.liverpoolmuseums.org. Liz's chapter is that of probate industries, by the way. We'll also include the link with the episode release on social media. Speaking of, in case you didn't know, we're on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries with plenty of exciting show updates, additional content, and a chance to win your very own time machine. Well, okay, I may have gotten a little carried away with that last one. But we do have a really exciting announcement to make in the coming weeks. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Until next week, thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with past preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.